0: <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome back to the Forgecast, my name's Sam Towns And I'm Alex Norton
1: Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor Today's Forgecast is brought to you by Weber Abrasives, where Aussie makers get all the best abrasives at all the best prices. Hit up Rob today at webers.net.au. What have you been up to uh, this week, Sam? (laughs) Cutting (laughs) me (laughs) off. Damn it.
0: Uh, Yeah, it's been a busy week. Um, So I... Oh, crap. I've got to remember now because... (laughs) we uh we had our interviewee recently so um yeah i did a billet of suminagashi by hand on my in, on my youtube channel uh, on and the live for stream the,
1: for the non weebs in the audience <laughs> so uh
0: suminagashi is uh flowing ink pattern Damascus which is basically um pattern welded uh thin layers of high carbon steel with uh thick layers of mild steel to create a very unique, uh, flowing pattern. Uh, I, I still have to do a manipulation on it to get it to look the way I want it to look, but, um, it's, uh, different in that when it's heat treated, uh, it's normally uses a laminate, like, you know, uh, in a Sanmai or a hmm. Nimai, um, uh, three layer or two layer. Uh, and then instead of, uh, etched, it's actually bead blasted or sandblasted. Um, which is topical to this episode, but Mm. we'll get to that in a minute. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the the hardness of the hard steel resists the the blasting, whereas the mild steel doesn't, and so it gets a really nice kind of uh, subtle and yet uh, very contrasty uh, look, which
1: I, I really enjoy. Do you get any sort of carbon migration shadows into the mild?
0: Um, you may do. I, I haven't seen it on any of the examples that I've seen made in Japan. But, of course, those guys have been doing it for a very long time. Mm. <laughs> so, there's a good chance that they've really nailed their, you know, patterning process. Mm. Um, So, I, I can't be sure that I won't. But I'm not certain that that would affect the way that it's blasted. Um, They could, obviously, if there's, a like, a... a uh, range of hardness along that line it could I'm be keen interesting. to see it yeah me too when I when I finally get it done <laughs> whenever that is in the next six to 12 months um, but yeah on top of that I actually spent today uh, cutting out stuff for the plasma cutter and grinding stuff I uh, finally got to cut out two more cutlass blades to start making my cutlasses for the club Um. And I got them heat treated. I actually heat treated them on an Instagram live, and uh, was talking about all of the different techniques that I use to keep things straight when heat treating large blades, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> which is saved on my Instagram if you want to see that. Um, and so yeah, I got those heat treated, and they're all they are all tempered up and all that kind of stuff. Now I just got to final grind them and uh, make hilts for them, which means tomorrow I'll probably spend the day sitting behind a plasma cutter and grinding. <laughs> And then using my dishing swage again, which, uh, yay, street metal work, mm. my favorite. We'll make a we'll um, make an armist myth out of you, yet Sam. <laughs> the rate I'm going, it would not be surprised.
1: Um, <laughs> well, what is a bowl guard if not some armor for your hand?
0: It, pretty much, yeah um (laughs) it's it's just it's just the early stages of like a helmet um (laughs) same same process basically but um yeah so i'll get those done hopefully within the next week because i want to have those ready for my next Hema lesson here at my shop uh, at my place um because i'm starting a little cutlass group here like a subset of the Hema group that i belong to so uh yeah and actually my patrons have uh agreed that they want to see my uh, my instructional videos so i'm gonna be doing some uh, instructional cutlass videos for my cool. EMA students and my patrons will get to see that so um yeah other than that uh, i've also been kind of slowly chipping away at a couple of the custom commissions that i've got at the moment the uh, pugio dagger and the viking sword and stuff like that i've kind of been looking at them and that's about as far as i've got on working on them but i definitely need to get started on working, working on, those. on
1: your telekinetic blacksmithing abilities uh,
0: that's that's it you know it's much like the seafood diet where you can you know seafood need it uh you know i'm hoping that if i look <laughs> at them hard enough eventually it'll i'll start working on them um but i do need to get to work on those i am waiting for my flat platinum to show up because i smashed my platinum. wow is that still uh, not here well no, um, shipping's been a little delayed between South Australia and WA for some reason and it's a very large package because I ordered the glass with about 40 kilos of steel with it, so... Right, um, hopefully they package them nicely. <laughs> <laughs> you might hopefully. get 40
1: kilos of steel and some glass shards.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> some powdered glass, you reckon? A little, little bit of bubble wrap between them, it'll be alright. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, so I haven't got that yet, so I've been doing everything uh, with my 12-inch contact wheel, which has made life fairly interesting. I've been learning uh, my 12-inch contact wheel pretty, pretty well, uh, and luckily it was usable for the restoration that I did on a knife for Mr. Seth Wood. Mm. Um, a, a little uh, piece that he got given by a friend of his a while ago it meant a lot to him, that got burned up in the fire that burnt down his house that we mentioned on the show a while back. Uh, and I was able to bring it back from the ashes, had to reheat treat it and regrind it and all that kind of stuff. But I'm pretty happy with the overall result at the end. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's been pretty full on, lots of, lots of work going on. I've still got, uh, more stuff to do. My, uh, my employees back tomorrow, uh, where we're going to work on hammers, I think. Um, I still have hammers available in my Etsy store at the moment because we got a bunch out. Little people better uh, go on top yeah. of that. Yeah, gotta just keep the stock up. <laughs> you know, like that's that's my that's my goal at this point. Constantly have hammers available. Uh my song of the week, um, is one that I kinda of stumbled on in my, you know, usual Spotify rambling <laughs> you know, just l- listening to various playlists um after I get sick of listening to the Forgecast Tunes playlist on repeat. <laughs> um and it was one that, like, originally I, I heard it and I wasn't super enamored with it because, like, the tone was just a little off and stuff like that. But then I listened to it again and the message really hooked me. And, like, the the overall story of the song is actually really good. So I, you know, after re-listening to it now, I, I'm really a fan of it, even though the singing isn't perfect and all that kind of stuff. I, I really like it. Uh, and it's called Nothing On Me by Chris Knight. Uh, and basically it's about how he has been trod on and like the, all this kind of shit has happened to him and life is really hard, but has got nothing on him. You know, like that whole idea of no matter how hard life gets, you're harder, <laughs> that kind of thing, which, yeah. um, you know, for me, it's, it's a reminder that, you know, no matter how hard times are, you can fight through that shit and, you know, get to the other side. Um, you, you have survived every one of your worst days. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed the message of it. I really enjoyed the the way it was written. So, uh, yeah, definitely a worthy a worthy addition to our uh, our playlist. But what have you been up to?
1: Still struggling with an injured back. It's better than it was, but it's um, it's still giving me grief, making me have to move pretty slow. So uh, because of that, they they are. Um, So I haven't done any more work on your buoy build um so the i actually added them up this i'm doing four things in that build that i've never done before so i I need to be at my peak to be able to take that on Um, but i'm hoping to get back into it soon um instead i've been working on a um one of the most delicate projects i've ever done it's a keyhole handled slip joint um looks amazing so far it's such an elegant shape i really love it the 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 walk and talk on it is something that has to be felt to to actually really get a sense of it it's so um sort of feather touch light but at the same time really clearly secure and um i spent more time than i probably should have trying to dial that in just right um <laughs> and going through and like polishing the tang and and polishing the back of the uh, the, the back spring up to an insane grit just to get because once I got the feel right, I wanted it to be just silky smooth. Mm. And um, the keyhole handles, which I had to make again because the first ones yeah. um, just weren't long enough. Um, I tried <laughs> everything to make them. Work, but they just didn't want to work. So I'm actually happier with the new ones than I was with the original ones. Um, and now that it's actually all being rounded and contoured and everything, it's just coming together so nice. Um, it's gonna be one of those knives I don't want to let go of. But there's already a dibs list of people waiting to have their shot at getting it. So um, it, it's got to it's got to go out into the world. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's one of the ones I've been most happy with that I've made. Um, keyholes are no joke let me tell you it's it's one of those things it's just they're just difficult no matter how you swing mm-hmm. it it's just difficult um so uh i'm i'm proud of the fact that i did it i'm even prouder of the fact that i did it twice uh, <laughs> te- technically four times because it's handle scales on a folder <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, I've been doing some prep work on my, uh, musketeer rapier for heat treatment, mm-hmm. ready, ready for heat treatment. So I'll have to study that video that you posted on, on Instagram. Um, yeah, it's one of two. I have one from when I heat treated the first cutlass blade as well. So yeah, except I'm not going to, ha- I'm going old school with mine with a trench forge <laughs> and wow. I'm going to do it at twilight. Um, oh dear. So that I can watch the, the colors, uh, as best as possible. So, it's good for um, video if you ever get
0: someone to hold the camera for you.
1: Well, I know Broden's going to be there because he's got his. Um, oh, I've forgotten the, the specifics of it, but it's um, basically it's like Arya's sword from Game of Thrones. The small sword. Yeah, it's um, it's beautiful, but he um, needs to reheat treat it because he tried mm. to do it in his forge, and it's just <laughs> it's not happening. Yep. Anyone um,
0: who's this, tried to heat treat something that long in a forge. And especially <laughs> no that story.
1: delicate as well. So, um, mm. like, although that's got nothing, like this musketeer rapier is like 1.2 meters long. It's it's mm-hmm. huge. So there's no way I'm doing that in a forge. Um, so trench forge it is. And um, I figured why not? Like, it's it's just some sup nine. I can always remake it if if um, mm-hmm. it goes wrong. It's, I've got heaps of it in bar form, uh, round bar form. So um, I've got to try and get the heat treatment done, though, before the fire bands kick in because once mm. the fire bands kick in, there's no trench forge building for me, let me tell you. No. So gas forges uh, only. Yeah. Uh, so outside that, um, I've been doing a lot of sort of sitting down sedentary work, which has been uh, good because it's given me time to work on my slip joint course that I'm working on. It's about halfway done now. Um, it's, it's been a long time in the making because I've had so much other stuff on, but it's... Um, mm-hmm been reinforced a lot because i've been teaching my wife to make slip joints so um, it's all solidified in my head and i want to try and capitalize on that and it's coming together good trying to come up with ways to clearly explain some very intricate things like to Mm. it's it's very simple to make a simple slip joint but to make a nice slip joint is very complex and (laughs) trying yes trying to explain why from the perspective because it's a it's a course that's aimed at somebody that has never done one before to just walk into it they have no idea how it works and to try and explain it at that level is is hard so i'm not the at the best with words at the best of times so um yeah it's been challenging but being unable to move some days um it's been good i can just sort of sit there and work on the wording which has has helped i think so hopefully it comes together well uh, my song of the week this week is actually... Uh, it's an Australian classic and has been for a long time and it's, this, it's a song that will get the chorus belted out by pretty much any Australian in the country um, and the more inebriated they get, the more enthusiastic they will get at belting the chorus out and they do it with such vigour that um, it's easy to remember that it's an incredibly sad song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a something that uh, it affects me to listen to the song it is a great song it affects me to listen to it because my mentor actually fought in the Cold War he was in the Malaysian confrontation which if you don't know that was a a pretty bloody conflict that was going on at the same time as the Vietnam War um, and not that far away geographically Um, and the stories he's told me of the things he's seen and had to do Um, and witnessed being done horrify me the the breed of person that can go through that uh, and return back to normal life and still be a kind gentle person it it blows me away Uh, and this song is actually telling the story of somebody who went through uh, the vietnam war came back and realized that he just couldn't, after seeing what he's seen and doing what he's done, he can't be a normal person anymore. And he's just trying to fit in and trying to find answers, and he can't. Um, but the song is called Kaysan, and it's by the band Cold Chisel, uh, which is a very popular Australian band. If you, uh, I'm not sure how big they are overseas, but they're huge here. Uh, jimmy um, barnes
0: got pretty big in america so but
1: that's it most people will know jimmy barnes who had a very successful solo career he was the lead singer of cold chisel and if you don't know jimmy barnes you do probably know the screaming cowboy uh meme <laughs> that was going around uh that's him yeah. <laughs> still brilliant yeah he voluntarily went in to do that music video knowing what it was going to be and i respect the man for that but um the song "Case On," even Australians who are listening to the podcast now, will be like, "Oh yeah, I know that song." Oh, you yeah, know, "Last playing Out of Sydney." Blah blah blah. Stop and listen to the lyrics closely, and you'll realize just how mournful of a song that is. And every time I hear it, it hits really hard because I know my mentor so well. He's um, not only my mentor, but he's one of my best friends in the world. And just knowing. Like this is a guy that still wakes up screaming in the night sometimes, and he's in his late seventies. Um, it still affects him like that, and he could he tried to hold a normal job and he couldn't. Um, he ended up becoming a potter and a blacksmith um, out in the sticks to to get away from it all, and just so that he could you know function in society at all. And, and quite, um,
0: quite poignant uh, as today as we're recording is eleven eleven, which is. Uh... Yeah, Day, Day. Or veter- yeah, Veteran, Veterans Day over in America and Remembrance Day here.
1: Yeah, so, so it's um, it was it it's been it's been on my playlist a lot lately, and um, I, I challenge anyone who doesn't realise what that song's about to listen closer to the lyrics uh, or maybe bring them up uh, on on the Googles uh, yeah. and follow along because it's it's one of the most beautiful summations of that. Uh, not so much the war itself, or the experience of the war itself, but the experience of what it is to go back to society after something like that. Um, it's also a hell of a jam.
0: Yeah, it's great. I it's mean, a
1: great song. If you don't listen to the lyrics, it sounds like a hell of a rock jam. But yeah, that's the thing. It sounds like such an uplifting song, but it's it's, yeah. it's really not. <laughs> no, really not. So um, yes, we do have one listener email. Well, we have inspirations. What do you reckon?
0: Uh, let's knock out the uh, the email, and then we can get into our inspirations.
1: It's a big one. It's, it is from Ben, and he says, I apologize in advance for the long email. My name is Ben Smith. I'm from the U.S., and I've been wanting to get into forging since I was a kid, honestly. Only recently have I had the room and disposable income to truly get started with forging. I've been joking with my buddies that it's my destiny since my surname is Smith. I've gotten a handful of tools, angle grinder, hammer, dremel, a cheap welder and gloves, etc. And I've been debating buying a forge or just making my own. If I were to draft up the idea I have for my forge, would you guys be able to go over it and tell me what you think and if I'm missing anything? Aside from that, trying to find local supplies is a pain in the ass. I am sure I'll run across it in the podcast, but trying to find a high carbon steel supply seems like it may be an issue. That, along with borax flux and stuff, it seems like Amazon is the only way to get a lot of this stuff. And I was wondering if I might be looking in the wrong place for it. It's amazing how many people think something is going to be a good high-carbon steel like rebar and railroad spikes. Trying to explain that it's not actually high-carbon steel isn't a problem that I foresaw i'll make sure to put in metric measurements for the draft since you guys all use it and if you're interested in seeing it loving the podcast regardless and it has inspired me and given me many ideas for tools and such i want to make which this reminded me of one more question i love the aesthetic of damascus and want to make some hammers and stuff with it but i'm curious about the heat treat and making it too hard do you guys think I could use quenching oil that is chilled to around 10 degrees to slow the quench and make sure it's not as hard? Or would the cooler temp draw heat more quickly despite the higher viscosity of cold oil? Well, that's been enough rambling for me and I hope to hear back from you guys, Ben. <laughs> so there's a few questions to address there. <laughs> um, yeah. The first one, I actually... Um, I can cut out a lot i have a youtube video on my channel of building gas forges um mm-hmm. so check that out it explains the whole thing um yep a, and if you're building good first forge and if you're building charcoal forges he's also
0: got a video on doing that too
1: i do um as um, for ste- high carbon steel supply in the u.s is is pretty easy to be honest uh
0: yeah new jersey new jersey steel baron mcmaster car um mm. i know don hansen still sells some occasionally uh, but yeah, NJSB and, um, and McMaster Car are the ones that I most commonly hear thrown about by our American compatriots. And if you want fancy steels, Coy Baker at Baker Forge and Tool. Yeah. And uh, as far as flux and, and like blacksmithing supplies and stuff like that, Blacksmith's Depot. I yeah. wish we had access to Blacksmith's Depot here in Australia. Absolutely. Shipping prices are ridiculous, but they have everything.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You can um, also probably find a lot through Farrier Supply because uh, mm. America is big on horses. They love their horses over there. As yeah, I where mean... Where there's
0: horses, there's Farriers. I've purchased quite a few things through my local Farrier Supplies, so yeah, definitely an option.
1: As for the uh, the quenching Damascus hammers, um, mm. <laughs> you don't necessarily want, want to... Uh, or- Chilling the oil is never a good idea, for starters. No, it's not going to help you. It's uh, the it's not the temperature of the oil, it's the viscosity of the oil that you're trying to shoot for. Um, well, to an and, extent.
0: Well, the the thing is that uh, it's it's based off the assumption that a slower quench means a softer hammer. Mm. Um, and the, the thing is, is that it's not about the speed of the quench that affects hardness. Um, what you're wanting to do is transfer the austenite the heated steel into martensite and that requires a certain speed of quench now it doesn't matter what speed of quench you're using if you're using the right speed of quench for your steel so say you use 1084 and 1520, you want a medium or high speed oil to quench in the the main thing comes in the tempering right so if you want a softer hammer made out of a high carbon steel like damascus or anything like that then you just temper it a slightly higher temperature than you would temper the lower carbon steels. Mm. Um, the, the hardening process doesn't dictate the hardness. <laughs>
1: no. You ideally want to harden it as, uh, to as hard as you can get it, and then you control what the final hardness is by tempering it back. Precisely, yeah.
0: Because um, you can also, if you cool too slowly, but not slow enough that it anneals, you can actually get it into what's called the blue brittle range, which means that it'll be soft, but also frangible. So you'll have a really, really bad hammer that wants to crack and deform. Uh, so you're better off hardening to full hardness and then tempering it back as much as Two you can. Like. Two things you do not want a hammer to do. <laughs> no, no, that's it. Um, I mean, I've made hammers uh, with 1084 faces, uh, which is the same as using Damascus, it's just that it's just a single steel instead. And yeah, all I do is just temper them back to, you know, 250, 300 degrees Celsius, somewhere around there. Um, and that is more than enough to, to make them withstand shock. Yeah. so
1: Hopefully that helps. Hmm. So who's been inspiring you this week, Sam?
0: Well, I, I believe I've used this person in the past as an inspiration, but recently um, there a lot of their stuff has been coming across my Instagram feed and uh, has reminded me of why they inspire me continually. Um, and one of the, my favorite things about this person is that they continually refuse to go for MasterSmith purely because they don't believe that they have, or they, they don't believe that they need, like, that. Acclaim. For a long time I, I saw that they were saying they didn't believe that they were capable of making master. I'm pretty sure they're capable of making master. <laughs> but they've right. been a journeyman for over ten years. Oh, um Yeah, yeah. But they're making Master Smith quality work every day. Uh and their name is Carl Anderson. Um now, Carl Anderson's quite famous for his San Mai and his Hamon work. Uh he is kinda of the guy who um really pinpointed the carbon migration lines in stainless steel Sanmai. Um, Like, his 410 stainless uh, Sanmai always looks amazing because it has that beautiful ghost line of the carbon migration through the jacket. Mm. Um, And he's the one who really kind of uh, pioneered that um, in the community. And uh, his Moan work is always super clean. Like his, his contrasts are amazing and his overall designs are always super clean, right? Like his, his guard and handle work is just as clean as his blade work. And it's one of the things that always struck me about Carl's work is that it's always uniform in it's cleanliness. You, You can tell, you can't tell whether he prefers working on blades or handles. Most knife makers, you can tell. You know, you can tell that they're like, oh yeah, this guy's definitely a Blade guy, this guy's definitely a Handle guy. With Carl, it's impossible to tell, because his work is always so freaking good. <laughs> but yeah, he holds himself to an incredibly high standard, and uh, continually meets that standard as far as I'm concerned, but I know that he wouldn't say the same. Uh, he goes by CarlB.Anderson uh, on Instagram, and it's K-A-R-L-B. Um, Dot Anderson uh, and Anderson's with A A N D E R S E N, not S-O-N um, right. and he yeah, he's been around for as I said, ages and ages he's a journeyman smith of the ABS and has been for over 10 years and um, yeah, definitely worth following because he gives out great hints on how to achieve the cleanliness that he achieves um, but yeah, definitely an awesome guy
1: uh, to follow yeah, who's Who's been inspiring you? Um, I'm sure everyone's going to be really surprised to hear this, but it's another one of those uh, French makers. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm stunned. Beyond belief. I know. What could possibly have created this strange change in trend of what I've been looking at? <laughs> just mad Frenchmen just everywhere. Oh, and the, the deeper into that rabbit hole you get, the more mad uh, in all the best ways. Uh, mm-hmm. There is some truly stunning work coming out of that country, particularly in the world of folding knives. But um, the one who's been inspiring me this week is, and actually for a couple of weeks, and I've been bothering Sam with it as well. <laughs> um, his his name is uh, Jerome Hover. Uh, he goes by torpen29, T-O-R-P-E-N 29 on Instagram. And he, he makes, you know a type of knife like a slip joint for example he will say okay i'm going to make a slip joint but i'm not going to use anything like any mechanism for a slip joint that anybody's already done i'm going to come up with something (laughs) completely different that achieves the same function yeah can't do it the same way as everyone else that's right and he comes up with these wacky weird off-kilter ways of making a slip joint action happen or a a spring loaded knife happen or something like that, that nobody else has done. It's just totally different. And he performs this task with such elegance and Mm. cleanliness and, simplicity of design such that you look at it and you think, why has nobody else thought to do it like that? Why are we doing it the way we're doing it? This is so much cooler. Yeah, um, well, I suppose it's the if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of attitude that well, we all have. <laughs> that's it. But he's kind of got like a uh, like a think differently m- mindset. We're going to get sued mm. by Apple now. Think different. <laughs> um, but he, he makes just gorgeously unique pieces that are mm. colorful and they're they're interesting shapes shapes that you don't see in in folding knives ever um and he just is not afraid to experiment with all these different things and anytime i see a post of his i'm immediately sort of drawn to it. it's like oh what did he come up with now it's some of his knives don't even look like knives uh, until you watch a video of it and then it makes perfect sense when you see it move. Um, but in addition to this wild and amazingly great creativity level that he's got, he's truly an artist. Like he's he makes beautiful work. It's clean. It's it's well designed. It's it's aesthetically pleasing. It's just everything about it is is incredible. And he mass produces this stuff on his own. Mm-hmm. It's um. With with just impeccable uh, consistency, and does custom versions of them and, and things, and it's just all of them are uniquely his style. They don't um, they they don't conform. They're not like anything that anybody else does. So um, yeah, it's the sort of thing you have to you have to see it for yourself. Cool. So definitely check him out. Um, once again, his name is Jerome Hovair. Then he goes by Torpen Twenty Nine on Instagram. criminally underfollowed knife maker. So, but Kaz Knives follows him, so that should tell you something. <laughs> so, um, with inspirations and emails out of the way, that brings us in to tool time. Tool time. And tool Time this week is tantalizing the airwaves thanks to the most epic knife-making supply company in Australia who also ships internationally, Nordic Edge. So next time you're stocking up on goodies for your knife-making shenanigans, be sure to visit nordicedge.com.au first. And Tool of the Week, as Sam hinted at subtly earlier, it's <laughs> sandblasting ball. cabinets. Mmm which we can't remember if we've done before or not, but you're getting it anyway.
0: (laughs) We we couldn't be bothered looking back and seeing
1: if we've done it before, so we're doing it again. Um, If we are doing it again. Unless you've got really big lungs, you really want to have an air compressor with your sandblasting cabinet. Yes. So it's kind of like two tools of the week. Yeah. But, yeah. They are handy for an array of things. Yeah. uh, my favorite is is texturing um sandblast texturing of nonferrous metals which we often see uh our boy Niels Vandenberg doing
0: yeah and i um, i use that to great, uh to great effect uh in my 48 hour dagger challenge
1: dagger yeah gives you a beautiful matte finish to things which um you can do all sorts of fun things with once you've got it you can um do uh who is it uh it's the the artificery Mm. is a favorite knife maker of ours who actually bead blasts um using i think it's glass beads doesn't he bead blasts uh, burl handles and um, you get incredible texture on the wood which is just some of the photography he does of that to, to show the detail is incredible But um, they're an incredibly versatile tool and there are different ways you can do it. You don't necessarily need the full cabinet. You can just have a sandblaster and, you know, (laughs) Sam was telling me about a unique way that Michael Cthulhu actually does it.
0: Yeah, he uses a uh, plastic tent and just... Sandblasts inside the tent and then wraps up the plastic and pours it all back into his hopper. <laughs>
1: because that's he's like normally a big I- icing thing,
0: yeah. icing pipette. Because he's normally working on swords that are, you know, like six foot long, so <laughs> he <laughs> needs the room. But, um yeah, and and the versatility is something that's really important. Uh, I recently, obviously, uh, came into possession of one. And uh, so many people, when they get sandblasting cabinets, will just use one form of media. Normally, garnet is the, the most common. Mm. But there are hundreds of different kinds of media you can use in a sandblaster. Everything from walnut husk, which is incredibly gentle, all the way through to hardened steel shot, glass beads, garnet, diamond, uh, silicon carbide—all kinds of really cool, different, um, different media that you can use to achieve different effects. And then obviously you have differences in grit size. Like you can have light, uh, fine grit, medium grit, and coarse grit uh, sandblasting media. I have medium grit garnet in mine at the moment, but, uh, such as in Shumanigashi, um, it's steel blasted. It's actually using low-carbon steel powder, uh, in place of standard media, and the reason it's low-carbon is because you don't want to damage the high-carbon steel. Uh, but you can get low-carbon and high-carbon steel powder and high-carbon and low-carbon steel shot for your, uh, blaster to provide different effects. Um... It's and, like insane airsoft. Exactly, yeah, and and funnily enough, it, it's been used in like this. Uh, that form of of texturing has been used in Japanese um, work for a long time. Like we're talking back in the medieval period, where it wasn't blasted. They what they did was put the media in a, a basically a hammock, and they would use a cup with a hole in the bottom and scoop some of the media and then hold it above their heads and let it rain down on the on the piece. And normally they would use heavy steel shot or heavy, heavy shot of some kind, heavy rocks in order to provide the texture. Hmm. Uh, because obviously they didn't have the ability to compress air at that point. <laughs> no, with that attitude? Uh, no. Yeah. It had a you know, apprentice just blowing really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I, I will note. Oh, Billy, three lungs.
0: That's it. I will note that uh, you need a decent compressor to run a, a sandblasting cabinet. Um, Hmm. I've got a little, uh, 40 liter single stroke, like single action, uh, compressor, which is what most, you know, hobbyists have. And it runs my, my blaster for about 10 seconds, um, Hmm. before I have to let it charge again. Um, realistically you want something in the hundred liter range, uh, and a double action, uh, which means it's got two, either two motors or, uh, two pistons, and is pumping as the other one is drawing. Um, most most um, basically most over the counter compressors are going to be single stroke, uh, which means that they have a pressure cycle and a drawing cycle, and so therefore they're not really pumping as much uh, air. The recommended uh, cubic foot per minute um, rate is three hundred and sixty. Uh, my little one only gets 160, so it <laughs> you know, needs a significant increase. And compressors, or, can or be a
1: smaller cheaper. sandblasting cabinet.
0: Well, the the thing is, it's not the size of the cabinets. The
1: it's the gun. Um, yeah, a smaller gun.
0: Yeah, but the smaller the gun, the less effect you have.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Anything to to not have to upgrade your compressor because I have a like a 90 liter or 92 liter or something compressor, mm-hmm. and that thing is by far the loudest thing in my shop. Yeah. Even even with um, adequate hearing protection, I have to leave when yeah. it's charging up. It's 97 decibels. Yeah, it's, they're insane. It's like a Kiss concert. <laughs> but yeah, I mean,
0: I, I run mine in short cycles, which works for me uh, for most of the stuff that I do at the moment. Uh, but if I wanted to do some heavier work, especially if I wanted to start using heavier shot, because the hate the the weight of the media also has a direct effect on how much uh, pressure you need because you need more pressure to draw that media up the hose um, mm. and yeah it, it it can get really expensive the guns and the hoppers are actually really cheap you can get them for as little as like 150 dollars 200 bucks from your local hardware store but a decent cabinet's going to run you about $800 and that's without the compressor <laughs> Uh, a decent size compressor for a, for a gun cabinet is going to be about two grand. Um, brand new. Unless you can find them secondhand on the market. Yeah. But yeah, they're an incredibly useful and versatile tool, and I highly recommend getting them if you can.
1: Yeah, a lot of people um, will be lucky enough to find them pop up in the secondhand market because, uh, funnily enough, a lot of people buy them for their shed, mm-hmm. use them once. And then a year later, go. I never use this thing and sell it cheap. Yeah, they and um, they
0: underestimate like how much it takes to run. So they just, they, you know, they're like, "Oh, I'll just run it off my little car compressor," and then realize that
1: that's not going to cut it. Yeah, um, so they they do they do get sold secondhand quite a bit. Um, oh yeah. And sometimes got... like the, the the glass will fog up because it gets scuffed up, and they don't realize that they can replace it, so they sell the whole thing. And... Yeah, I
0: I bought mine secondhand for like 150 bucks, and the brand new one is like 800. So. Mm. Um, yeah, you can get them
1: real cheap. Yeah, so definitely keep your keep your ear to the ground on that one. Now, our topic of the week this week is, uh, as I hinted on last week's episode, um, <laughs> it's sort of like a little bit ranty, only, <laughs> only slightly ranty, just we're giving partially you, ranty. We've given you all the rants in these most recent episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so it's it's challenging assumptions and. It's just assumptions are the cause of a lot of things that go wrong in our work. Mm-hmm. Uh I know I get bitten by it, I know Sam gets bitten by it. Um no matter how much you try and be conscious of it, you will lapse and you will make assumptions about things. Mm-hmm. And that's where things go wrong. And the reason that got me thinking about it is because in the space of a week I had both a friend who's a knife maker messaging me about this and I had my wife, who I've been teaching to knife make, have this happen where um, she would drill an eighth inch hole and put eighth inch pin stock into it and it wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. Even though it was deburred and, and, and all that sort of thing, she's like, why doesn't this fit? And um, then the, like, the, literally the next day I got this message from somebody saying exactly the same <laughs> thing. It's like, God damn, it doesn't fit. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I said, well, how do you know it's eighth inch pin stock? And they said, oh, I bought eighth inch pin stock. And it's like, did you check it? Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, you know, five thou over. Mm-hmm. And so, well, that's a problem. It's like, but then um, in the other instance, it was exactly eighth inch pin stock. It was, it was machined, mm-hmm. but it still didn't fit. And mm-hmm. I said, well, a drill does not necessarily drill the exact size hole that it is. That's why reamers exist. Because you drill an undersized hole and then you ream it to size, uh, and then even then, if that doesn't work, there might be a burr there or something like that. And these assumptions—that I mean—in just this simple task of putting a pin in a hole and having it be snug, there's a lot of assumptions that can be made there, and you can get frustrated as to why things aren't going wrong. And any machinist will tell you that you know there's there's so many different areas that something can go wrong. And knife making is. A form of fabrication where a lot of things can go wrong. Blacksmithing is a form of fabrication mm-hmm. where things can go wrong. Um, as we've talked about, and Sam's brought up before as well, um, that once uh, steel stays non-magnetic once it passes its Curie temperature. So <laughs> if you te- if you magnet test your steel and it doesn't stick, you can't assume oh I've hit Curie temperature. You may have passed <laughs> it le- and then you know left in the dusts. And you see this happen on and Fire when people are panicking because of the incredible time restraints that they're under and they pull out something that's like glowing like they, with the heat of the sun and then they stick it in the oil and, and um, wonder, wonder why they, they have... get cracks all through <laughs> it. it. Cracks and horrible grain structure, yeah. It's like, I checked it with a magnet, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and those assumptions are something that you've got to be consciously aware of because mm. they, will, they will bite you. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like,
0: temperature is one of those things that we often come into assumptions with. We we covered it last week when we were answering that viewer question uh, about with the tempering, temper tempering in an oven, yeah. Assuming that the colors are going to be correct, or assuming that your oven is going to be sitting at the right temperature, right? Like, mm. assuming that the oven knows what... Is even. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Is even, or even knows what the temperature is. Like, my little toaster oven at the moment, the um, the controller on it is dead. So it just oh. goes to maximum temperature and just keeps running at maximum temperature. Um, like, it just turns on the, um, the elements and then stays on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's running at, like, 300 degrees always. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, like, if I just assumed that it was running at, you know, the 180 or whatever that I wanted for knife blades and left a knife in there for two hours, I would come back to a knife that was way over-tempered. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where we, we make assumptions. I had a friend of mine who's a knife maker, uh, buy some meat thermometers to put in their oven to check for temperature and, uh, you know, they had it all set up and all that kind of stuff and they made an assumption. They made the assumption that those meat thermometers were measuring in Celsius
1: yeah,
0: and they weren't, <laughs> they were measuring in Fahrenheit, which means that the 180 <laughs> degrees that they were getting was barely even... Boiling water temp, rather than you know, let alone tempering temp, and their blade snapped in two. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, like these kinds. of... I mean, of... even
1: NASA did that, didn't they? Have something yeah. <laughs> that was um, programmed in in feet, but they it was operating in feet, but they put in meters. Yeah, yeah, because NASA and it does just all slammed of slammed the... into the surface. Yeah,
0: NASA does all of the calculations in in um in meter in metric, and always have uh, for space going missions, but someone. Obviously a newbie uh, had accidentally input (laughs) feet (laughs) and ended up slamming into the surface. I think it was the surface of the moon or the Mars. I can't remember which one it was.
1: Yeah, I think Um, it was Mars.
0: Yeah, but yeah, (laughs) it it, it happens even at the the higher echelons. Um, But yeah, simple stuff like assuming that straw color is going to be, you know, the right tempering temperature for a given steel when i like as i said before 52 100 turns bright blue at tempering temp like at proper hardening tempering temp just because
1: of the chromium we've talked about as as well the uh, the colors the heat colors of steel um and saying you know that when you pull it out uh, and look at it it might be a bright orange in the ambient light that you're in Mm. but that bright orange it it may uh, if you see it bright orange and you're in full daylight, that thing is smoking hot.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's one of the things we've talked about in uh, forge welding. People assume that they're getting up to welding temperature. But, mm. you know, unless... like That's why we tend to say, just van der Steg the shit out of it. Just get it hotter until it's yeah. sparkling. And then you know that you're past the temperature at which you need it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, we were doing some forge welding. Uh, Broden and I were doing some forge welding, and he was watching for the flux to be uh, bubbling on the surface. Mm-hmm. And um, I was saying that that just means the outside is hot enough to bubble the the flux. Yeah. It's a big billet, you know. And the inside needs to get hot. Leave it in there a bit longer. And you know, we got the weld in the end, but it was um, a near miss of one of those assumptions. Mm, yeah, and uh, impatience gets the worst of us in those cases. Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm bad for that. I'm really bad for that.
0: Yeah, like, uh, I was tempering these swords today, uh, I have to use the Don Fogg kiln to temper my swords at the moment, which means I have to stand around the kiln for about an hour and a half, two hours, constantly pulsing the, the burner on and off, uh, like a manual PID (laughs) controller, um, in order to maintain temperature, and, um, yeah, I had to continually keep checking the thermometer to make sure that I'm running at the right temp. Uh, and I even actually double-checked by throw, like, cleaning off the end of a piece of mild steel with the grinder and then sticking it in there and letting it get up to temperature and then bringing it out and testing the temperature with another thermometer. <laughs> because I'm a <laughs> massive <laughs> anal retentive when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, hey, with
1: all the work you put into a sword, you want to make sure you're getting it right.
0: Well, for these, like, they're, they're not super... Um, like, work-heavy, but they are going to be used in combat, like, they're going to be used to hit other people, and mm. if they are too brittle, then the end could snap off and someone gets shanked, and I don't want that to happen, especially because that person could be me.
1: Yeah, you need to keep your new employee in line but <laughs> you don't want to physically, or you know, permanently hurt them.
0: That's right, yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why, uh, up until I had this kill and I wasn't comfortable with making combat blunts, like, for, for um, actual HEMA and stuff like that. Because there's no way to reliably heat-treat a sword capable of withstanding that amount of abuse uh, without a temperature-controlled kiln. Um, because, like, it, it's one thing to have a sharpened sword that can, you know, cut stuff occasionally and whatever. It doesn't need to be super accurately heat-treated in order to provide that kind of service. But repeated blows against steel <laughs> can uh, can lead to some seriously bad stuff to happen. And... Uh, yeah. I've seen some really bad injuries in HEMA from blades that weren't properly heat-treated. So,
1: And, yeah, it comes down to, like, when you're particularly in knife-making, although this is the same in black, blacksmithing as well, um, hmm. if you are working on something and something keeps going wrong, you're not getting the result that you're wanting out of something, the best thing to do, I find, is to look for... Try and find the assumption that you're making. Because guaranteed, there'll be an assumption that you're making that something's getting to a particular temperature when it's not. That something is a particular way when it's not. Yeah. Um, if it's something is high carbon steel, steel it. when it isn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I had an incident with... Um, I was uh, coffee darkening a knife that my wife was working on. We were, we're she doing her first coffee darkening. Uh, she'd never done it before. And I showed her how to mix up the coffee and, um, and let it you know cool down a little bit and then put the knife in there uh, and everything was going fine. Pulled it out and it was this horrible blotchy finish. Mm. And I said, oh, did you clean off the, the steel properly first before you put, put it in there? And she goes, oh, no, I didn't. I'll go and do that and we'll put it back in. She went off, cleaned it thoroughly. I watched her do it. She cleaned it better than even I cleaned my blades. And she put it back in. And when we pulled it back out again, it was still blotchy. Mm-hmm. And we had fully tested this knife. It was hard. It was evenly hard. I was doing file test scratches along it. It was hard. And it made a, she rehand sanded it. Like we went back through and through and through. And we kept making new batches of coffee each time to make sure that it wasn't that. We changed brands even. Mm-hmm could not work out why it kept coming up with blotchy surface finishes. And you know what it was? The one thing that we didn't clean was the, the jar. Yep. <laughs> the container that the coffee was in. The first time she put it in there, it did have oil on it. Yep, And, that and oil the oil the stayed surface. in the jar and there was a surface that would form on the water. And as you put it in, it would drag that oil straight onto the blade again and yep. it would stay in there and be blotchy. I've made that You never thought... Yeah, never thought to clean the jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it was days of work trying <laughs> to get this thing to work. I, like, Yeah. Yeah frustration upon frustration, and I'm thinking, like, I'm starting to doubt my entire... It's like, should I even be a podcast host? I can't get a simple <laughs> coffee etch to work. I'm trying to be teaching somebody here what the hell's going on. I'm, I'm a fraud. know mm. <laughs> all, all the while, clean the bloody jar. There's had, oil in
0: the jar. Yeah, I had the same problem, uh, but in reverse, in that uh, every time I would put the blade into the, into the etch, the ferric, it would always end up with weird blotches around the ricasso. And so I'd mm-hmm. clean it stupidly thoroughly. Like, you know, I, I clean with uh, hot water and soap like Karl Roy does, and it's the most effective that I've ever had. But every time I'd have the same problem. I just could not fucking work it out for the life of me. I knew that there was something inhibiting the, the, uh, the etch. But then I realized that what I was doing was cleaning it, you know, like holding it by the tang in my left in my right hand, And then I was walking out to the the thing with the the point held down and Mm -hmm. oils were running from my hand down the tang onto the blade, right? Like (laughs) just all of the grip and grime and stuff like that on my hand was running down with the water onto the blade and that was what is inhibiting the thing. So now I carry all my blades point up. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> before I go into the ad. <laughs> it can be stupidly simple things that take forever to work out why.
1: But, you know, once you work that's it out, the thing. you're like, oh, God. You don't God. often make uh, assumptions about the big things. No. Um, and it sort of ties in a lot to our, um, our rant episode that we did a couple mm. ago where we are talking about the armchair warriors. A lot of the time they're making assumptions as well. Of course. I mean, how many times have, have you as a listener or you, Sam, um, had an armchair warrior have a go at you about something and their whole argument is predicated on an assumption that they're making about why you're doing something the way that you're doing it
0: yeah yeah all the time
1: yeah it's uh, it's, it's just it's the way human brains work we are walking talking assumption engines oh, of course yeah um, I,
0: like i mean recently yeah. i had a really good one where uh the cutlass that i made uh the hema cutlass someone tried to correct me on the handle because he's like oh you know I made a a, a picketing um, blade a long time ago, and you want to make the handle with a thumb imprint and all this kind of stuff. And what I realized is that he thought that I was trying to make a 1904 officer's sword for a cavalryman. And I'm like, oh, well, this is a cutlass. <laughs> I understand the I understand the differences, uh, and I understand what you were trying to get at. But thank you. But yeah, no, this is. This is not that. But yeah, it, it simply comes down to, I see something, I think this is happening, and make, an, make that assumption before investigating. And I think that's the biggest problem.
1: Yeah, people try and hit me up about you know historical accuracy of my pieces and they're making the assumption that I give a shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've had a few people assume that I haven't tempered a blade purely because I didn't put the tempering in a video. Right, like, you know, right. I've, I've done a video where I quenched it and then maybe in writing or maybe i just didn't at all and the next scene is me hand sanding it or something like that Mm. and people have gone you didn't temper it so it's gonna snap and i'm like no i I tempered it trust me
1: (laughs) i actually i i I sort of i'm a bit um i I know it makes me ragey but i can't help myself i'll be you scroll on instagram and i'll see a post that's being done by somebody who very much knows what they're doing you know Mm -hmm. like the the, you know, the, the Niels Vandenbergs, the Carl Royers, the Jay Nielsens of the world. Yeah. And they'll yep. do a post and you see the post and you're like, there's going to be some shitty comments <laughs> on this. I'm going to go have a look. You can,
0: you can um, sense
1: it from a mile away. You can smell it. just Anyway, my favorite is when someone's like fresh out of the tempering oven and it's blue all mm. over. And you're like, oh, yeah, there's going to be some juice in this comment section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's funny that it's always there, but the thing is, like, no matter this, this is why I love knife making. And I've tried a lot of different crafts mm. in my day, and I'll try many more before I die. I love making cool stuff. Oh yeah! But one of the things that is unique about knife making is that it is such a deep pit of knowledge mm. that every time you think you've got a good grasp on it. You, the fate will give you a little peek through into the next room and you'll realize that the next room is about 50 times larger than the room you're in.
0: Oh, absolutely. And then
1: you'll go to that next room and then one day you'll find that there's <laughs> an even bigger room after that.
0: Yeah, and, and it's one of the things that I constantly fight in myself is trying to stop myself from assuming I know what I'm doing. Um, yeah. You know, like people, people constantly tell me that, you know, like, oh, thank you so much for sharing all the stuff that you do and all this kind of stuff. How do you know so much? And I'm like... Only because I realize that I don't know anything, (laughs) right? Like I am fully willing to be corrected on anything provided there is evidence for that correction. Because at the end of the day, I know bugger all in comparison to some people and I know more than some others. But at the end of the day, I'm never going to assume that I know everything because that is the first way to fuck up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and people, people are scared of, of doing something wrong and, 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 screwing up a project or something but if you want to learn as much as you can about something the best way to do that with any sort of decent speed is to fuck up hard and fast yes just try get out there do it pick up a hammer have a go and screw stuff up yeah just don't do it on stuff do. that you know
0: can't be replaced
1: that's right screw it up and then figure out why it's screwed up it's a really quick way to learn yeah,
0: that's it and be willing to take feedback you know be willing to take criticism constructive yeah. criticism criticism constructive for the sake of cri- criticism. yeah cons- cons- uh, criticism for the sake of criticism's just shit yeah. And there'll That's be plenty right. of people out there who will willingly criticize you with nothing to add. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, people oh, who
1: don't do it. the thing themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, my, but my they favorite... watched every episode of Forged Fire. Yeah. My
0: favorite one is it's always the, the faceless, you know, generic named accounts that end up mm. going at you the hardest because they're anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the moment you come back at them and say, you know, yep, feel free to, sh- you know, shoot a video or, you know, take some photos of your work and let us judge, they disappear. Like, almost un- instantly. It's-, it's amazing.
1: Yep. That's it. Like fart in the wind. Yep.
0: <laughs> Just as smelly.
1: That's right. Now, guys... Don't forget, we've got a bit of a competition going on at the moment. Not just Sam's buoy competition. That is also but good. we have a competition of our own that is running in parallel at the same time. It's, not, it's going until the uh, New Year's Day. And that is to make a beautiful set of matching wood carving tools, which must include at least a Warncliffe Whitler a spoon gouge and a bowl carving knife and we want you to show us that they work doesn't have to be anything elaborate just show us you know they're hardened and sharp and carve wood Um, and send us photos you use the the hashtag uh, forgecast competition Uh, we want to see them and we are going to be judging them and there are going to be three winners a first second and third place and those are Places are going to win prizes provided by Ryan at Otway Fiddleback. Definitely check him out because he's been dropping some absolute fire lately uh, on his Instagram account, mm-hmm. Otway underscore Fiddleback. Uh, and only one of each block exists, so you've got to, you know, you got to be in it to win it and follow him. So um, if you want to win some of that juicy, delicious goodness, which has been fully and expertly stabilised by Dean at Reclaim Creative. Um, you can win three blocks if you win first place, two if you win second place, and one if you win first place, delivered to your door anywhere in the world. So it's a pretty good deal, considering those blocks are you know, a good 50 bucks a piece sometimes. Yeah, they're not cheap. Yeah, and they are good quality. and Sam and I use them almost exclusively. Yep. So, um, plus, good wood carving set. A, handy to have. B, easy to sell. Very easy, yeah. Wood so it's not wasted time, and we want you to make really pretty ones. So, you know, that sells even better. So, it's not wasted time. Get on it.
0: That being said, I'm I'm kind of happy that I'm flooding the market with
1: buoys at the moment. <laughs> it's, just, it's just everyone's making buoys. at <laughs> Yeah and you know these everyone's going to just be have to be happy with second and third place on Bowie yeah, well, build off because and fourth I'm place coming, and guys. the and the viewer, viewer's choice there are five this, prizes This is the real reason that there's extra prizes cuz you know I've just taken. I'm I'm going <laughs> to take the first prize. I'm sorry guys in well, advance. Well
0: one of the one of the pieces of the fifth prize the viewer's choice is a bar of damascus so uh you know. Ooh. Yeah there, there may Delicious. be more added to
1: that so there may be. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been seeing the buoys that are in the works at the moment. It's 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 a it's it's fiery. The competition There's, is fiery.
0: People are really pulling out the stops. I'm I'm seeing some really hard work on this stuff. People are really yeah. pushing themselves to the point that one of one person ended up in hospital. So. Uh, <laughs> was I it hope... Jamie again? He's no. like, I've got another hand <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I, I think it was the Iron Haggis uh, I'm not sure entirely One of the guys ended up with a piece of steel in the eye Because they were doing some grinding without uh, without the guard on their grinder And it snuck around their oh, safety glasses Jesus,
1: guys, don't make us do an episode on the importance of PPE Well, it had safety glasses
0: apparently But yeah, face That's shields are better Face shields um, are better
1: yeah I have upgraded to a face shield. My Honeywell has saved me from so many. Every time I think, I'll just pop the glasses on for this one, a bit sure as shooting, bounces off my cheek, goes up under the glasses...
0: I I got less in my eye not wearing safety glasses, not wearing anything at all, than I did wearing safety glasses. (laughs) And then I switched to a Honeywell face shield and then I got nothing in my eyes. And then I got got my (laughs) Versaflow.
1: And now you get nothing in your eye and get pleasantly air-conditioned. I
0: honestly forgot that I was, like, how unpleasant grinding is.
1: (laughs) Isn't that funny with the Versaflow, though? Every so often you have these freak-out moments. It's like, oh, shit, I'm grinding without eye protection. Oh, hang on. (laughs) I literally had that moment where I was... I
0: had sparks bouncing off the front of the, the Versaflow and I'm like, oh crap, you know, it's going to get around it. <laughs> and then yep. I realized that I'm fully enclosed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, if
1: fine. it gets around a Versaflow, it's earned it.
0: I, I think the thing that freaked me out the most was that I couldn't smell the burning metal. Like normally mm-hmm. even through a like a respirator, you can smell the fumes, but because mm. the Versaflow pack is down low on my back behind me, I couldn't mm-hmm. smell the, the metal fumes. And I was like... the fuck's going on have I gone nose blind
1: so Sam I speak for the people we Uh, want to know have you cupcaked yourself yet I have now yeah yeah Yeah, it's pretty bad but I didn't
0: have the mask down (laughs) I had had the mask up and it was blowing in my face (laughs) (laughs) and I was talking to a friend of mine and then suddenly I just coughed hacked and like bent over and he's like you alright and I'm like no no that
1: was horrible Uh, don't do that my poor wife caught me while I was grinding <laughs> and she just sees me flailing around and hearing <laughs> Oh, oh,
0: oh, oh. <laughs> uh, it is, it is
1: terrible. Uh, I've now it's taken to war-
0: wearing it on my left hip. So, <laughs> you know,
1: so, so Did I tell you, you that 3M way. finally got back to me after I gave them the feedback about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. It took them like eight months to get yeah, back well. to me. <laughs> and they were very politically correct about it they thanked me for their feet uh, my feedback um and they will take it under advisement <laughs> and they sent me a bunch of um like uh fiber discs yeah, yeah. as nice. like a thank you that was pretty cool <laughs> yeah it was pretty good they're, re- they're actually not bad for stripping fire scale or things like dummy bars and that
0: from from all of my dealings with 3M and their distributors, I, I've I've have to say that I'm pretty impressed.
1: I was worried that they weren't going to take it seriously at all because as soon as you talk about flatulence in an email, nobody ever <laughs> takes it seriously. But if you have a VersaFlow, it is a very serious issue.
0: It really is. Like I'm, I'm it's, actually it's a the little, only fault. I'm a little concerned that if I like, if I lapsed judgment enough, I could suffocate myself. It's, um,
1: it's, it lives with you in there for too long you really, yeah, really need to does. stop what you're doing and, and vent yeah take that you mask off a steam cloud come <laughs> out when you are lit- anyway
0: <laughs> we have got very off track if you want to send in a question or uh you know an email to the ForgeCast, you can send us an email at ask.forgecast at gmail.com or you can find us at the.forgecast on instagram and facebook uh, although we're very, very rarely on Facebook there, so, you know, find mm. us on Instagram instead. Um, you can find me at Sam Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, YouTube, Twitch, and, of course, The Kitchen Sink. Uh, and where can they find you,
1: Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, Redbubble, everywhere. Patreon.
0: And the secret word of the day is cupcake. Uh, so <laughs> leave that in the Instagram <laughs> comments and confuse
1: the hell out of anyone who hasn't listened this yes, far. Comment cupcake. Yep, just a cupcake. <laughs>
0: you will know what it means. <laughs> Bye, guys. See ya. Bye! <laughs>